Are we living in the golden age of the church? Our journey through the book of Acts, which I am teaching in the Monday and Tuesday night Bible studies, the men's and women's study, separate studies, that journey we took last week, just as an overview of the book, revealed four things that characterized the progress reports of the early church. Now, I don't know how, you know, what we would write up today as a progress report. Um, I remember when I first started in ministry, um, some of the progress reports that we got uh, were always oriented toward, of course, you know, how many people came to church, how many were in Sunday school, uh, you know, what did we collect, uh, you know, how much money came in. Uh, those are some of the things that we would, you know, be looking at as a progress report. And it was a great church and a great pastor, but we as a staff, it was a mega church, we as a staff would sit around and we'd talk about this progress report, dealing with those kinds of issues, you know, uh, for some time. And I always wondered, isn't there a better way? Well, as you go through the book of Acts, I find that it revealed four characteristics that are four things that characterize the progress reports of the early church. And they are these from last week, and I imagine they've got it on the screen above me. First is the word of God spreading, growing, multiplying, prevailing. Is it changing lives? Second, are disciples being multiplied? Not our people who go forward being multiplied, or are, are people who uh, accept Christ being multiplied, but are disciples being multiplied? Third, are churches being edified and multiplied? Are churches being built up, and are they creating more churches? And fourth, is the kingdom being preached? We'll talk a little bit more about that today. And the things of Christ being taught. The things concerning Christ being taught. Now, applying these principles to our own day, I think it becomes clear that if we were to give a progress report, particularly of the church in North America, I would say we are far from living in the golden age of the church. There's no doubt today that the church, particularly in the civilized world, is bigger, richer, and more influential than at any other time, perhaps, in history. But the one thing that we lack as a church today, and I'm not talking about our church specifically, but of the church in general, is authenticity. In fact, if you talk to the 20-somethings today, that's one of the things that turns them off about church, is that so many churches come across as being less than authentic. When it came... Or when it comes to the church today, we might better see it as possibly characterizing the crest of a very long age. In other words, sort of an age that's been moving up and cresting. An age we've referred to as the history of the church, but the age I'm going to be talking about this morning is actually a little longer than the history of the church. We might be better to regard this age as a mysterious age. Not as a golden age, but as a mysterious age. An age in which the Word of God has been spreading and prevailing in the lives of many people. 
An age in which many have become obedient disciples or followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. A mysterious age in which many churches have been edified and have multiplied. A mysterious age in which there has been much preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God and the things about Christ. But equally, an age in which so much of the Christian church and the things that relate to the Christian church, what we call Christendom, has been characterized by everything but these things. What historians have been left to analyze might better be regarded as 2,000 plus years of mystery when it comes to the Christian church and Christendom. Think about it. We just had what this movie, we had a movie this year, The Crusades. You think about the vibrant life of the early church and how it started. And then you have persecution. Then you have the age of the church fathers in which there was a lot of confusion theologically. You have then the Roman Empire being declared Christian. You have the Holy Roman Church. You have the Dark Ages. You have the Inquisition. You have the Crusades. You have the Reformation. You have the State Church. The Great Awakening. The Church of the 20th and 21st century. And you take it all in and there's only one label that I could put behind it all. It's an age of mystery. An age of mystery. We're going to be looking at this mysterious age over the next few weeks. But now switch gears with me just a moment. And let's look together at the lowest common denominator of this age of mystery. And that is the life of the individual believer. Your life and my life. And let's ask these questions of ourselves. Is the Word of God spreading and prevailing in my life? In your life? Are we prospering as disciples of Jesus Christ? Is our church being edified and multiplied? Are we hearing and responding to the preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God and the things about Christ? Are the answers to these questions also marked by confusion, conflict, and mystery? Or do we understand them? I want to grow personally in my life as a Christian. I want to become productive as a Christian. What do I need for this to happen? I attend a church where Hopefully the Word of God is preached, and yet nothing seems to be changing my life. At least some people would say that. Could it be the worship? Could it be the preacher? Could it be the times in which we live? Could it be me? Or you? Can you help me unravel the mystery of my own life? Pastor? What are the secrets leading to spiritual success, Pastor? As well as the secrets to understanding the mysterious age in which we live. I invite you to turn with me to a portion of Scripture found in the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, and it's chapter 13. Chapter 13, it's also on your note sheet, and you are welcome to follow along and I double-space the scriptures on the note sheet. If that kind of thing is helpful, you ought to 
let me know at some point so I know that this is being useful to you. You could always put a little note on the bottom of a card and in the pew and just pass it in sometime and say, I like the note sheets. But as we look over the note sheets, you might want to write in some notes along the way. Now let me just say some things as we move into this chapter. In this chapter, Jesus makes it very clear that we're not living in the golden age of the church. The golden age of the church, and indeed the golden age for Israel, and the golden age for all believers in all ages, will be the age of Messiah's kingdom. We're not living in that age yet. That kingdom is still future. According to Jesus' words recorded in Matthew 13, and then there are parallel passages in Mark 4 and Luke 8, we're living in the age of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. We're living in the age of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Let's read the first part of Matthew 13. On the same day when Jesus, on the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. By the way, this area where he was was an area that had this, these huge walls behind him. And then it's just a, a perfect place for hearing, for your audio acoustics. Verse 3, he says, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. And the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. And, but when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now the point of this parable seems clear enough. Fruitfulness depends upon the condition of the soil. Notice the seed is the same. The same seed is sown on four different kinds of soil. The only thing that's different here is the condition of the soil. One soil is a rocky pathway where the seed's kicked around. Another soil is spoken of as a place with a thin layer of a covering of soil over rock. Another is soil that is in a briar patch or thorn patch. And thirdly, Fourthly is the soil that is called good soil. And the point that's being made here is fruitfulness depends upon the condition of the soil. But why did Jesus tell this parable? What does it mean? What was our Lord trying to teach? After he tells this parable, he adds these words in Matthew 13, verse 9. He says, He who has ears... To hear, let him hear. What he was saying here is that there's something profound in what I've just given you in this parable. It needs to be heard and understood and applied to your life. Something those who listen to it should be responding to. Now Jesus is segregating his audience, like he often did. It's as if he was saying to some... All you who are interested enough to listen and ask questions and learn the truths of God, come on up here and sit on the front rows. 
And all of you who have no real interest in these things and who are just along for the ride, you can tune out now or leave. Now the question I would ask us, and it's very important that we ask ourselves this question, is what kind of audience are we? And each one of us is an audience. So it's not like I'm talking to the whole church, I'm talking to me as an individual. What kind of an audience am I? Or you? There's a lot of treasure today placed on those of us who are speaking. Our skill as communicators is constantly being evaluated, and we should work hard to improve our communication skills. However, in the world of the Bible, the responsibility for communication, and particularly by Jesus, was put squarely upon the hearer. That's who was responsible. Even if a communicator is saying something untrue, a good listener needs to be asking questions and thinking about what was said in an effort to uncover what is true. It's important that we be good listeners. And God holds us all, and I'm included here, all accountable to being good listeners. When we read our Bible, we aren't just to be reading words on a page and thinking about something a million miles away. God wants to speak to us, and are we listening? And we might think, oh, this is boring. But God will hold us accountable if we don't listen carefully. Verse 10, And the disciples came to him, and they said to him, Why do you speak to them, the multitudes, in parables? And Jesus had what most of us preachers would love to have. He had a huge crowd. And the disciples were a little upset that he wasn't speaking in ways that they could grab onto. Now, parables are stories from real life designed to convey through analogy some specific spiritual truth or truths. The problem wasn't in understanding the story. The story is simple. When it comes to the parable of the soils, which would be a better term than the parable of the sower, when it comes to the parable of the soils, the story is very easy to understand. It sounds good, but exactly what does it mean? That's what Jesus wants his people, to whom he's speaking, to be asking. What was this parable designed to teach? That's what we need to be asking. And when I was a young man learning to preach and teach, I was often told, keep the cookies on the lower shelf so the children can reach them. Or sometimes you use the thing, keep it simple, stupid. Kiss. And that sounded great. But it wasn't exactly the way Jesus went about his teaching. In fact, much of his teaching seemed above the heads of those he was speaking to, who were listening to him. Not because his vocabulary was too, too advanced. I mean, obviously he could have used big words, but he chose always to use very simple words. It's because the truths he desired to teach require as much from the listener as from the speaker. That's the point that Jesus always was making. This was the exact reason he was using parables. 
to put the cookies on the top shelf so that the children would have to work to reach them. God's truth wasn't cheap. Jesus wanted people to put forth some real effort to take a hold of the truth, knowing that if they put forth effort, they would be more likely to hold on to what they got or what they received. In this case, Jesus had something to give his disciples that was not for the fickle crowds who were basically along for the dog and pony show. The disciples had a hunger to know the truth. The crowd didn't. And therefore, Jesus wasn't really speaking to the crowd. He was speaking to his disciples and those other followers who really were there to learn. And so we read in verse 11, He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Luke says the kingdom of God, sort of used interchangeably. By the way, the kingdom of heaven has more the idea of, of a, um, a kingdom whose source is in heaven. It comes, it originates in heaven. The kingdom of God would speak more of the kingdom belonging to God and that uh, his will is done. But the point being here is, Jesus says, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now, Jesus is not talking about the kingdom of heaven per se, but about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. What in the world is he talking about here? And therefore, that brings me to my big illustration for the day. Are we ready? Here's my big illustration. And it's going to take a few minutes to get through this illustration. But I invite you to listen and listen carefully. We cannot understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13 until we first know something about the offer of the kingdom and the rejection of the king in Matthew 12. Chapters 12 and 13 are pivotal chapters in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel goes for 28 chapters. In the middle of this gospel, like a giant hinge, you have the first 12 chapters, and then you have the last, what would it be, 15, 16 chapters. In chapter 12, things sort of reach a crescendo, a climax. The unbelief of the nation of Israel becomes very apparent. The Jewish religious aristocracy representing the nation commits the most unpardonable sin of ascribing to the devil the works of God, the Holy Spirit, being done through Jesus, who had just healed a demon-possessed man who was deaf and blind. Jesus heals this man, and many of the people were saying, could this be the, the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? And the religious leaders are saying, we can't have that. And they couldn't explain it. So they said it's the devil doing it through Jesus. Buzz. Wrong answer. When Jesus healed the demon-possessed man, it was just one more miraculous work the Holy Spirit performed 
at Jesus' command, which signified that Jesus was indeed their Messiah King. In the first 12 chapters, Jesus had been doing these miracles. And all of those miracles were like signposts saying, He is your Messiah. He is the Messiah King. He is here to establish the kingdom. Furthermore, through the miraculous things that He did, the power of the Holy Spirit, it made it clear that the Messiah King had come and that the kingdom was at hand. And that's why He went about preaching the kingdom. Because He was the Messiah King and now it was time for the King to be established. But the leader's rejection of Jesus' ministry coming to a climax in chapter 12 underscored the ultimate rejection of the nation of their Messiah King Jesus at the cross. It was a rejection that raised a very important question which was bound to eventually trouble anyone who believed Jesus was the Messiah King who came to establish Messiah's kingdom. And the question would be this. With the king rejected, what is going to become of the promised kingdom? If the king is going to be rejected by the nation, he's going to be put on a cross and die, what is going to happen to the kingdom? After all, this was what was promised by God. He promised it. You know, when I made a promise to my kids, they expected me to keep it. I always told them I made plans, not promises. Plans can be changed. Well, God didn't say this was a plan. He said, this is a promise. I promise this kingdom and the Messiah will reign on the throne of David over all the nations of the world for all eternity. And the question is, what's going to happen to the kingdom, Lord? The nation's rejecting you. I mean, he's anticipating that they're going to be asking this question down the road. Or to put it another way, what will happen to the kingdom of heaven on earth in the absence of the king? In order to understand the answer to this question, which Jesus will give in chapter 13, we need to ask another question. What defines a kingdom? We talk about preaching the kingdom of God, and I know a lot of good dispensationalists here in the church get real nervous, and you should, because it's something that can be very confusing when we talk about the kingdom of God. I assure you, I'm not talking here today about the messianic kingdom. But the question is this. With the king rejected, what is going to become of the kingdom? What will happen to the kingdom in the absence of the king? And we need to understand and define a kingdom. Is a kingdom defined by its geography? We think of England having a kingdom. We think of, you know, the islands. Or is it perhaps a kingdom defined by racial or cultural similarity? I don't think any of those things have to do with the kingdom, even in the modern world or the ancient world as well. The dictionary says the state, the, the word kingdom means the state of having a king or queen at its head. And I would add one more thing that the dictionary doesn't bring out, but you need subjects who claim to be loyal to the king and pay homage to the king and who declare that they will do what the king says. You've got to have subjects. You have to have a king. You have to have subjects. The Messianic kingdom promised in the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah king would rule over his Messianic kingdom with a rod of iron, subduing all the peoples or nations of the world. 
In Messiah's messianic kingdom, all the people and all nations, including Israel, will live in righteousness and justice according to the word of Messiah King because they'll be forced to. And if you don't live according to the righteous law of the king, off with your head. Or cut off from the kingdom. Now again, in Matthew 12, we learn about the rejection of the Messiah King, which will culminate in his death on the cross. Following the cross and his resurrection of Jesus Christ, we read that he, the Messiah King, ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God in glory. Until, we read, his enemies be made his footstool. From other scriptures, we learn that when the time comes, he will return to earth to establish in power and majesty the promised messianic kingdom. By the way, I'm still on my illustration. But what about in the interim? Okay, we're talking about this kingdom that's coming down the road here. Messiah's coming back. He's going to wait until the enemies are made his footstool, and then he's going to have a kingdom that's going to go on forever. There'll be a brief interlude when the devil rises up. But nevertheless, it'll go on forever. But between now, when he's speaking in Matthew 13, and the time when he returns in Revelation 19, what's going to happen to the kingdom? What about the interim? The age between his rejection during the first coming and his reception at his second coming. The period of time spanning the king's rejection, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and waiting at the right hand of God until his enemies be made his footstool to his return in power and glory to establish Messiah's kingdom on earth. What about the kingdom during that period of time? Where will the kingdom be during this time? Will there be people who live in submission to God's Messiah during this time between, even though Messiah is not yet reigning on David's throne, but is seated in heaven. In other words, if there would be no king on earth to rule, then how could there be a kingdom of heaven on earth during this time? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. The mystery is that there will be subjects on earth who are loyal to the king and who pay homage to the king and who obey the king's word and who do what he says even though the king is not sitting on his earthly throne of David yet, but is temporarily on at the right hand of his father on a heavenly throne in heaven. In the old days, kings, if they, were, if they were out of the country, did they still have a kingdom? Look back in your Bible and you recall and talked about that the kings were to lead the armies in battle. And they would go forth from their kingdom and they would lead their armies in battle in foreign lands. Now, if they did that, did they still have a kingdom back home? They did, didn't they? The king wasn't there. The people could have rebelled. But they chose to do what the king told them to do or to follow the decrees that he had given. And because they were loyal to him and obedient to him, his kingdom continued even in his absence. 
How is it that rebellious, sinful people purpose and actually live in submission to a king who would not be reigning here on earth and forcing their submission? That is the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And that is what the parable of the soils is actually all about. It's not about how to have salvation. Obviously, some of that's there because the first will of the king is that all people believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. But that's not the primary purpose of that parable. The parable explains how it is that on this earth there will be actually people who voluntarily, willingly submit to the king even though he's not here to force that submission. And this is called the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. It's about responsible, productive subjects of the kingdom of heaven living in obedience to the king who rules in abstentia those who choose to live in obedience to him. Remember what you have to have to have a kingdom. You have to have a king and you have to have subjects declaring their loyalty and willingness to do what the king says. Let me take a look at a timeline here. It looks like this. And maybe they can bring that up on the overhead for us. Best I can do. I'm not really very good at this computer thing, as you can tell. But the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, and I wish I had that pointer, but we're going to get one. We just haven't done it. But uh, you have at the top there Jesus Christ. Over here you have the cross. I think you can get those two things pretty clear. Okay. When he preached Matthew 13, we were really before the cross where the bottom parenthesis is. The bottom parenthesis are below the two lines. The two lines represent time. Oh, do we have one of those? How do you use it now? <laughs> you got to hold it like that. Show me. Okay. Okay. Like a gun? Well, I'm good at that. Like a trigger. You had this finger. Okay, I got it. There we go. Okay. Okay, here you have the cross, and Jesus is preaching Matthew 13 right here about where this principle is, this parenthesis. Right after the cross, you have, of course, the beginning of the church age on the day of Pentecost, but then the church age ends here. The believers are raptured. They meet the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now on his descent to heaven for the second coming. He meets the church in the air, continues with the church for seven years, and then returns to establish his messianic kingdom at this point. But you see, we have the church age here. It ends there. Then you have the rapture, and then the tribulation, we presume, begins. The tribulation period begins for seven years long. There will be people who believe in Jesus and choose to serve him and be obedient to him in that period of time as well. So what you end up with is beginning all the way back here at the point where Matthew 13 occurs. You have the rejection, the perceived projection that's coming of the Messiah. And from that point on, all people who are... Part of the kingdom of heaven are doing so voluntarily, believing and following and obeying and being disciples voluntarily, and that goes on for the whole period all the way up to the Messiah's kingdom. Now, a lot of people get this all confused because they think the mystery form of the kingdom is the church age. The church age is part of it, but it's not the whole, sh- whole tamale, as they say. You've got to keep these things clear. And I know we had some controversy not too long ago in one of the classes, I think Jack's class, they teach on prophecy and There was some confusion on that. And uh, I'm not trying to say that the kingdom is the messianic kingdom where Jesus reigns on David's throne. But there is a form of the kingdom right now that's going on. It's a kingdom that actually, the Bible says, is in the hearts of the people. Why would that be? Because it's in the heart that they obey. 
It's in the heart that they're doing the will of the king. That's where it begins, as we'll see in this parable. Interesting. If you follow the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah King by the religious readers in Matthew chapter 12, notice how the chapter ends. There's this, been this big, huge fight going on between them, between Jesus and the, and, the, and, the, uh, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they were really at each other's throats. The people were watching. Of course, the people love a good fight. And, uh, but the disciples were the ones that were saying, what is going on here? And so at the very end of the chapter... Jesus had been engaging the people, and somebody came up to him and said, Jesus, your family's outside. Let's pick it up. Matthew chapter 12, verses 47 and 50. I believe that probably on the screen. I, don't, I didn't put it on your worksheet. Then one said to him, to Jesus, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Did you catch the part there? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my closest related person. I'm more closely related to them than I am my own mother. The strongest family bond there. The parable of the sower is not about people who are born again and who have eternal life per se. It's about people living in close fellowship and intimacy with the living God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and who obey Him instinctively and willingly, who submit to a king who is invisible to the human eye, Submitting to a king that does not force them to submit. Indeed, this is the mystery of the kingdom of God. What a mystery it is. It is truly something we would never stumble onto by ourselves, which is what a mystery is in the Bible. Something that is revealed that you would never have picked up from any other parts of the Scripture. We would never have stumbled onto this. People living in submission to the Messiah King who is temporarily living in abstention at the right hand of God the Father until His enemies are beneath His footstool, living in obedience to Him from the heart, that's a mystery that needs to be revealed. And this ends my big illustration. Now I ask, did we get that? Did we grab it? Did it get your attention? Did it get us to thinking? Did it move us? Did it stimulate us? Did we find it interesting? Did we understand it? If we didn't, we even need to pay more attention to what Jesus says in the next words of Matthew 13. The interpretation of the parable of the soils. I just want to make uh, clear, however, before we get to that, he goes on and says something that I think really strikes at the heart of the kind of mindset that's saying, I don't have any use for this, Arch. I really can't use this in my life. It's just not something I'm really into. Listen again to what Jesus says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? 
And he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Has it been given to you today? Has it been given to me today, or are we still clueless? Bored out of our minds. The answer goes to the heart of what Jesus' message is all about. Notice verse 12. For whoever has of God's truth, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance of God's truth. But whoever does not have an understanding of God's truth, even what he has will be taken away from him. The more truth we have gleaned from Scripture, the more truth we will receive from Scripture. Likewise, if we have gleaned little truth from Scripture, we will receive even less. Why is this? Because we don't know what to do with the truth we have. So instead of building on it, we let it slip away and have even less to build on in days to come. This is the point Jesus is making. This was particularly apparent in the lives of the vast majority of Jewish people that were there for the pony show. The crowd surrounding Jesus. So he says about them to his disciples. This is what Jesus says about this wonderful crowd that every preacher would drool for. Therefore I speak to them in parables, verse 13, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. The ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and do not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Friends, that could not be more potent and powerful and a needed message in the day in which we live. Jesus continues, verse 18, Therefore, with all this in mind, hear the parable of the sower. Hear the parable of the sower. And so we begin, by the way, Luke adds, not just the parable of the sower, but he goes on to say the seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that is the word going out from the king, which kings do, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart, Luke adds, lest they should believe and be saved. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself because... He endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. The first soil. And I don't want to go through this too much because about a year ago, Bob Wilkin did an outstanding job, one of the best messages I've ever heard on this parable, and you ought to get a copy of it if you didn't. But nevertheless, I think there's a principle here I want to come back to because it complements all that I've been saying this morning. There are three, there are four soils. And Jesus says, the first one is the one who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. And then the word 
the wicked one, rather, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart, Luke adds, lest he believe or they should believe and be saved. In other words, the idea is, is that here you have a person whose heart is characterized as a place where there's many ideas. I mean, this is the kind of person that's just constantly thinking about everything. And I mean, they're open to anything. They're the nicest people to talk with. Oh, that sounds like a wonderful idea. You know, they're ever learning and never able to come to any position or any truth. Sort of the characteristic of our postmodern day, by the way. But Satan sees that heart, and he sees that it's a pathway for every, everything under the sun. And so immediately he gets down, and he snatches like an evil bird. He snatches the seed out of that person's heart. By the way, the, words, the idea of the word being seed is something that's brought out a lot in Scripture, and we've looked at that before. But the idea of the, of the, of the word being seed is because it carries the message of life. First, it carries the message of eternal life. That is, when we want to know how we can have eternal life, you go to the Scripture and it says, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be given the gift of eternal life. And that message comes to you by virtue of the Word. And when you receive what the Word says into your heart, immediately you are born again. You believe it. And as a result of believing it, you are saved. You have eternal life. You're going to heaven. Satan doesn't want that to happen. So he's looking at a person's heart that's all these ideas, they're the sweetest people in the world, everything though that is just nothing ever seems to take, take root in their life. Never begins to germinate. It's just a place for ideas to pass through. And he snatches that word out of their heart, lest they should believe and be saved. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. Then you have the second soil. But he who received the seed on the stony places... This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root, Luke has the idea of firm root in himself, but endures only for a while, for when, he, when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now we've met this kind of person. Most of us have. They're the kind of person that they initially... And Luke adds the idea that they received the, the, the message with joy. By the way, it doesn't say they didn't receive it. Now, a lot of people, and again, I don't want to go into Bob's message, but the four soils, many people today take the interpretation that the first three soils are not Christian. The last person is the only one, the last soil is the only one that is truly a Christian because they bring forth fruit many fold. But in reality, it says of the first soil that the person that the seed was snatched out of their life so they couldn't receive it, lest they believe and be saved. So clearly, that's the person who was not the Christian, the first soil. They did not obey the first thing the will of the, of the Messiah King was, and that is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you come to the next three soils, all three of them receive the seed. That's important. Now, this one received the seed and received it with joy. They were excited about their newfound faith. They began to understand that I have eternal life now. I'm going to heaven. I have confidence that I have a relationship with God. I can talk to God. I can pray. I love singing about these things and, and praising God. And they're excited. But as they continue to be under the Word of God and the Word of God begins to tell them, look, you need to live differently. You need to follow Jesus as a disciple. You need to be willing to make some sacrifices. Oh, wait a second. 
I didn't buy in for that. Don't sign me up on that level. And so, what happens? They fall away. They bag it. How many of us have seen these kind of people? I can't begin to count the numbers. People that you just are so excited because they're so excited. And then, boom, they're gone. And they didn't go to another church. They just dropped out. They had joy. They received the seed. They're born again. They're going to be in heaven one day. But their faith was so temporary. There was no firm root because as the word that they received began to put down its roots into their heart, what did it find? But a stony heart. Rocky soil. And the, the roots couldn't penetrate that soil and draw moisture and, and change the way that that person thought and acted and lived. And so no fruit was brought forth. And they fell away. They found excuses. Jesus encountered them all the time too. I've got to take care of my father. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. You know, somebody says, I've got a business to run. I can't do it. You know, whatever. I've got all these different things going on. And they always made a good excuse. And, you know, people today that fall into this category are the, are the experts in making excuses. <laughs> Ask them to do something. You know, maybe help us out in teaching Sunday school or being involved in some ministry at the church. Oh, they, they've always got an excuse. And it's always a good one. But that's the point. The root, the Word of God isn't able to get through the hardness of their heart. That's the problem. And then we go on to the next soil. And the next soil, the third soil, it says, Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the Word and cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now, obviously, I'm probably in the boat with most of you. This one scares me more than any. It hits me right between the eyes. i got too much junk in my life. I mean, I have had in the past more so. And I have been trying to weed out a lot of nonsense. Just stuff that just doesn't have any eternal value. And I go to talking to the Lord in the morning, and I'm speaking about things, and I'm thinking, what am I praying about here? A lot of this stuff doesn't have any real value for eternity. This is the person whose heart is overcrowded. The soil is too overgrown with too many things that just don't lead to productivity. In fact, they, they crowd out the work of the Word of God in a life. The disciples experienced it. I'm sure that they were those, those 12 disciples as they followed Jesus around, they saw this kind of person who they had invested time in and put a lot of effort into and worked with them and they thought, they're going places for our Savior, for our Messiah King. And at some point, it just they couldn't go any further. They stopped. They didn't drop out. They continued to, to come along and watch the, the action. But you could tell the heart had become too overgrown. They just couldn't find the faith, so to speak. 
They didn't lose their faith. The problem was finding room for their faith. That was the real problem. That's a danger. I remember oh, a number of years ago, I, was, I took a scuba diving course to get certified as a scuba diver. And uh, they were selling equipment cheap and all that. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I ought to pick up some of this. And then I thought to myself, and I guess maybe that was a little glimmer of hope that I was maturing a little. I thought to myself, all I need is one more thing in my life to go do. The only reason I took the course is because my wife occasionally likes to go, my wife Carolyn loves to go and sit on, lay on the beach. My idea of hell would be laying on a beach. I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. So I slipped out. Forgive me. I apologize for that. But in any case, uh, I thought, okay, scuba diving while she's on the beach. And so I could get by with that. I'll rent the equipment. But I thought, well, I had this glimmer of thought, well, I'm going to just take up this another, another sport. All I need was one more sport in my life. I have too many sports already. And that was the turning point in my life when I began to finally turn down doing so many things. that I just, I just had this voracious appetite to do everything. Of course, kids helped a little bit to curb that appetite. But in any case, it was, it was a time where I began to make some, some adjustments in my life. And I've had to make more adjustments as I've gotten older. And they say as you get older, you're downsized, downsized. I think downsizing has to do with this very, very soil. We ought to be downsizing as Christians, not just wait until we get to be 60 to downsize. I encourage you, don't do what some of the things I did. Downsize now and make room for the Word of God in your life. Don't let it get too crowded. And then, of course, we have the last soil. Now, he who received, but he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. What kind of fruit are we talking about here? We're talking about the kingdom of heaven, friends, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The king wants fruit. What kind of fruit? Obedience. The fruit of obedience. When he says, I want you to love one another, fruitful response to that commandment finds ways to love one another. That's the fruit he's speaking about. It's not how many notches we can put on our Bible. He's talking about the fruit of obedience. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. Did you catch that? We're right back to where we started. There's a need to understand the Word of God. It's not just a matter of understanding the story or the illustration. It's understanding the Word. That's why it's there. Nothing's a little more discouraging than when you preach a message and you have a good illustration, maybe a, a good story, and somebody comes out and that's what they remember. And I've often said, well, what did the story illustrate? They come up a little blank on that one. I think, well, I failed on that one. It's not the story that you need to remember. It's the principle. And that takes us to the principles of the parable of the sower. And the chief message, the chief point, if you will, the parable of the sower, is that fruitfulness, that is obedience to the king, fulfilling all that he expects of obedient servants, is dependent upon the condition of the soil, which is the human heart. And it's what we bring to the table that God can use. If our heart isn't right, friends, and we're speaking here of heart in the scriptural sense of being the inner person, 
If inside we aren't right, then God will not be pleased. And we will fall in one of those three categories, assuming that everyone here has put their faith in Jesus Christ. We'll be like the first soil, the second soil, or the second soil, the third soil, the fourth soil. Because we're bringing a heart to the table. And the Word of God is putting down its roots in that heart, and it's what it finds in that heart as a way of resistance that's going to make the difference in fruitfulness. When we started off, we said, let's look at our lives, my life, your life, and let's ask these questions. Is the Word of God spreading and prevailing in our lives? Are we prospering as disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is our church being edified and multiplied? Are we hearing and responding to preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God and about Jesus Christ? If we have good and right hearts, good soil of a good and right heart before God, then I dare say that these things will become true of all of us. But if we bring to our life or bring before the Lord a heart that is resistant to the Word of God or that is overcrowded with too many other things, then we're not going to be where we should be as Christians. We may end up falling away, as in the case of the second soil, or we may end up basically becoming stagnant, as in the case of the third soil. So if you've fallen away or you're stagnant, take a look at your heart. And if you want to be productive, if you want the Word of God spreading and prevailing in your life, take a look at your heart. Are you really bringing a heart to God that His Word can change a life through? Let's pray. Our gracious God.